We are um, starting a new series. Last week we started it called 40 for 40. It has to do with combining two things. The 40 days of Lent. Lent is this period before Easter that traditionally the church has used as a time of reflection, um, sacrifice. And, and, And so we've taken those 40 days and we've combined those 40 days with what we believe, or at least the authors of a book that we're recommending to you, Kyle Eidelman and Darren Spoo, believe to be the 40 most influential chapters in all of the scripture. And I get it, man. The Bible can be intimidating. It's big. It's thick. Some of the words are hard to understand. I mean, have you gotten caught in Leviticus? Uh, some, you know, some of the begats and all that, right? It can be very problematic. It can be hard to wade through. And I want to encourage you to wade through because there is transformational truth there. But I also understand that practically, sometimes we need some help and some guidance. And so what I want to recommend to you over these next 40 days is this book, The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. One chapter, you're reading one chapter a day. These are not long chapters. I am doing this. I'm already two weeks into this. You can can do these in 10 or 15 minutes a day. It's not hard. And by the time you're done at Easter or 40 days after whenever you start, you will have gotten an overview of the 40 most influential chapters and the eight big ideas in all of the Bible. It's a really unique opportunity. You would think I wrote this book, but I didn't. And so... Um, We have some of these out at the Welcome Center, certainly not enough for all of you, but if you'd like one, you can buy them for our cost right out there, and uh, I'd encourage you to get one and and make a little commitment. Maybe it's an Easter gift for somebody. I don't know. I'm not trying to sell it, but I am trying to get you to get these eternal truths into your heart and start to learn and know some of the scriptural um, transformative principles that really can impact and change your life. Because if we don't know God through the scriptures... This is an important point. If we don't know who God reveals himself to be in the scriptures, we're likely following a God of our own invention. And that becomes a scary place and a lot of bad things happen. So check this out. Pick one up on your way out. You can get them online. Uh, You can get a digital copy for Kindle cheaper. However you want to do it, go get one. All right, so we're in week two of this. Last week we started with looking at the, the, the account, the Judeo-Christian account of creation. And specifically, we looked at the concept that all creation, men and women, are made in the Imago Dei, which was an earth-shattering truth in the in the time into which it was written. Because in those days, in ancient Mesopotamia, surrounded where, 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 um, it, where this was written, all of those countries had kings. And it was believed in every one of those countries, and it's still believed in a lot, with a lot of tyrannical rulers today, that the king, the ruler, he had the image of God. He was made in the image of God. Peasants, slaves, Middle class people, women, you you could come up with it. They didn't have the image of God. It was these men, rulers, they had it. Best case scenario, maybe. Best case scenario, you were made in the image of an inferior God. Onto the scene comes this Judeo-Christian creation story that says, no, no, that's not true. Everybody... Men and women, think about how revolutionary that was, ladies, 3,000 years ago. Women and men are all made in the image of God. Rich, poor, black, white, smart, dumb, royal, slave, everybody endowed with the image of God. And so last week we drew two quick conclusions from that. 
First one is this, every man and woman ever made, good or bad, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, unborn, comatose, every human being in every condition imaginable is of immense value and worth because they're made in the image of God. Second, being made in the image of God does not mean we look like God. I try to tell Joan all the time, look at me, I'm made in the image of God. But she doesn't fall for it. Specifically, it also doesn't mean that, that it does a little bit, but it's not the point of the story. Being made in the image of God does not just mean that we have different capacities and preferences than other created things. In other words, being made in the image of God doesn't just mean, well, we're made in the image of God because we're creative and we're religious and we have a self-conscious. Some of those things are true, but that's not the point of the story. Here's what the writer was trying to get across. The writer of Genesis was saying that just as kings in this day would place images of himself around, or, you know, if you were ruling over large land masses, how did everybody know who was in charge? Well, they would build statues of the kings everywhere, images of the king. This way, everybody would know who the ruler was. But the creation story that we're part of says that God places his own image in human beings so that the world can see who the ruler is. It's about that this concept of being made in the image of God is about your role in the cosmic scheme of things. You were made to reign under God's character, with God's power, in God's stead for the benefit of the earth so that when all of the earth wanted to know who was in charge, they could see by human beings. You are made in the image of God. God is graciously trying to share his power with a community of loving people who would exercise dominion through his strength, marked by his goodness. That's who you are. I showed you the example. N.T. Wright came up with a pretty good example of this, right, about being made in the image of God. If you heard it last week, I had a mirror, and I showed you being made in the image of God essentially was N.T. Wright, when he was a kid, had a fever, and his, he wanted his mom to be with him. His mom had work to do in the kitchen, and so he, his mom angled a mirror so that when he was in bed, he could look and see in the mirror, he could see his mom in the kitchen, and his mom could look into the mirror and see her son in bed. And that's what it means for us to live out our calling as being made in the image of God. We live with our mirror adjusted correctly so that what God is doing is his, his glory, his radiance, his life, his rule is raining off us, we're expressing it to the earth, and then the glory that is due God, the goodness and delight from the earth and his creation is reflected back up to God. But if you know the accounts of Genesis, the creation story, something goes terribly wrong. When given the choice to keep the mirror at the right angle so that my life is reflecting the glory of God's reign down to earth, and my life is reflecting the glory due to God back to the heavens. Instead, sin comes into the world. Mankind makes a choice that impacts us eternally, and we re-angle the mirror so it looks at me. Now, what's interesting is, when the mirror is at its right angle, right, and it's reflecting God and, and, and it's reflecting glory back to God, what can I see of myself in the mirror? Nothing. Sin comes into the world. What do I do with my mirror? What do I see of God? 
Nothing. Because I, I desire something differently right now. Right? Instead, I make this choice. We all of, all of us, because of this brokenness in us, I want to be king. I want to be in charge. And, and if I want to be king and I want to be in charge and I want to have my reign reflected all over the place, we're going to have a problem. We run into this in my house a lot. Maybe you do in yours. If I want glory and recognition and you want glory and recognition, well, eventually we're going to have a problem. I've run into this in the office. Maybe you have too. And so when the mirror gets re-angled, something changed in the nature of man. Sin enters the world, and we know this. We feel this. We feel it in our own relationships. We watch it on the news at night. The world begins to unravel. Second generation, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, mirror focused directly on himself. Abel gets some praise out of God. What happens? Abel's offering is acceptable to God. Cain's isn't. Cain gets jealous, murders his brother Abel. Eve, whose, whose name meant strength, she was to be this full partner with Adam, serving with strength. Just a few generations later, polygamy enters into the world. Women's names go from strength to things like Ada and Zillah, which translates ornament and shadow. Created in the image of God, fall, ornament and shadow. See, now here's the thing about God. As the whole thing's unwinding, he's not like you and me. Given the mess, I would likely throw my hands up in the air and walk away. I can remember sometimes I had four kids. I'd come home from work. You ever come home from, I don't know if you've ever had a lot of young kids, and then your poor wife is home with the young kids all day, and you walk into the house, and it just feels like World War II exploded, Right? And I can remember a couple times would, I'd come in and I'd just be like, you know, I'm just going to go for a little ride. I'll be back. Um, or maybe it's, you know, ladies' night when, uh, and break open the wine because I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. But this isn't who God is. God doesn't pull out of this situation. Given the mess where I would probably just say, you know what, you're on your own. Do whatever you want to do. God doesn't do that. In fact, there's this really interesting story that three of the world's great religions all share, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. They all start with this same premise, that God had created the world perfectly, and through the sin of man, the world had started to spin out of control into dysfunction and cruelty, lawlessness. Uh, this Darwinian kind of principle was reigning, might made right. They all agree, all of these religions agree that this is what happened. And all of them also agree that God does not walk away, but instead focuses a rescue mission on one man. A man named Abraham. All three faith traditions come together at this one man. This is, think about that. This one historical character. Three of the great world religions focus on one guy. And it's at that guy that they also all separate. Here's what they teach. These faith traditions teach that God picks an imperfect man named Abraham. We know he's imperfect because later on we see that he's a screw-up. He, he, he does things that he shouldn't do. The Lord, here's what the scriptures say. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household 
to the land I'll show you. Now, we don't get a lot of detail. It's interesting. Right before this, all we hear is that Abraham is a descendant of somebody. And this is the next line. So God just kind of picks in this dysfunctional mess. He picks a man named Abraham. Does anybody know why God picked? And all three of these religions say that God picked Abraham, one man. Anybody know why? The scriptures actually say because God knew him and figured he'd listen. That's why. I know him, and I think he'll do what I tell him to do. And so God chooses him. It's kind of under the heading of if you're going to save the world, you're going to have to start somewhere, and he's willing to go. And so God tells him to go, and he goes. And God comes to him and he says, I'm going to make you three promises. This is known in theology, and it's a, I'll bring why the theology is important back later. This is known in theology as the Abrahamic Covenant. Here's the covenant. Here's the promise. Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. Second, I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. Third, I'm going to bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So here's the promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. All people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, what? Did, let me ask you a question. What has Abraham done to deserve this? In fact, before I even ask that question, let's back up and look at what God is saying to him. God is saying, I'm going to make you into, I'm going to make you into a great nation. To which you would have Judaism saying, yeah, they made, a, they made it, they made, he's, you know, Abraham is our father, and yes, he made the Jewish nation. And then you'd have, um, you'd have uh, the Muslim nations coming forward and going, yes, look at the Arabic nations, what he's done with the Arabic nations. They, they would trace their lineage back to Abraham. You'd have Christians coming and going, oh, look at what God has done through Christians, and we can all trace it back to Abraham. So one promise is, I'm going to make you a great nation. Second promise, he says, I'm going to make your name great. Which is pretty amazing that we're sitting here 2,000 years later talking about a man named Abraham. And you could also go into a temple or a mosque and hear them talking about the same man, Abraham. I mean, I just wanted like my plaque on a softball field, you know. That's what I was hoping for. This is next level. And then the third promise is really, I mean, if you just want to sit and reflect on it, it'll blow your mind. He says, I'm going I'm to make a, you a blessing. Everybody that is ever going to live is going to be blessed because of you. Can you imagine God coming up to you? I mean, look, I think I'm a blessing. Everyone, I try to explain this to Joan all the time, but she doesn't seem to buy it, right? Sometimes we all live like we're blessings to everyone. But God comes up to him and goes, listen, you're going to be a great nation. Everybody that lives is going to know your name. And everybody who's ever existed is going to be blessed because of you. Here's the question. Are you ready? What did Abraham do to deserve this blessing? Nothing. Abraham did nothing. God chose Abraham and blessed him. Abraham did nothing to deserve the blessing. Other than God said, I know him, and I think he'll do what I tell him to do. Now, here's the issue. Abraham and God, uh, God uh, makes him this, this promise. Abraham's an old guy. 
Even more problematically, his wife, Sarah, she's even older. And at some point, you know, she's a barren woman. She's not, you know, at least physically going to be having, it seems, any more children. And so Abraham starts to put two and two together. Let's see, you know, everybody's going to know who I am, father of a great nation. I don't even have a kid. I don't think this is going to work. And so, you know, he follows, but then he kind of goes back to God and goes, I, I think you, there's a problem. Here's what he says. He goes, Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who's going to inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham said, you haven't given me any children. And so Eleazar, a servant in my household, is going to be my heir. And so Abraham feels like a lot of us do. You ever feel like God called you to something? I know. I felt it so clearly. This is what God wanted me to do. And I stepped out in faith. And you know what he got so far? Nothing. He did nothing to deserve the blessing he got. And so far, he's going, well, I'm getting exactly what I deserve. Because I don't even have any kids. But God looks at Abram and he goes, Abraham, this man is not going to be your heir. But his son, who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Abraham, look at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you could count them, because there's so many. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so God, despite the impossibility of this situation, he doubles down on the promise. Abraham, I know how it looks right now. Here's the covenant I'm making with you. You're going to have a great name. You're going to be a great nation. And the whole world's going to be blessed by you. Trust me. Trust me. And then comes this, come, this, nobody, see... This, here comes one of the great, it might be the greatest line in all of the scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. I know we got John 3.16. I know we got I can do all things through Christ strengthens me. You could throw me a couple others, right? Um, this one is probably better and more important. Because none of these other verses make any sense apart from this verse. This truth. This should be on your wall, on your desk, on your pillows. You should pry the fish off your bumper sticker and put this on here. This is that important. And it's at this statement where really everything kind of religion and rules, that's what we're talking about today, religion and rules, this is where everything gets all messed up, where Christians and Jews and Muslims all go in different directions. Because 2,000 years before Jesus, before Moses, before Muhammad, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says to him, so shall your offspring be. Here's this incredible truth. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, he trusted, he had faith, despite how it looked or how impossible it seemed or what sense it made. I don't have any kids. I got an old barren wife. I'm of no current importance. My future doesn't seem all that bright. But you're telling me I'm going to bless the entire world, my name's going to be great, and I'm going to have a family as numerous as the stars. That's what you're telling me. And then Abraham goes, all right. What? So th you need to understand how big a deal this is. God credited to him as righteousness. From the dawn of creation till today, men and women have been trying to figure out, develop systems, sacrifice, rules, all of these other things to make themselves right before God. 
in this one expression of faith of Abraham, he's made right before God. What has Abraham done so far that made him right? Nothing. Were there any rules that he could have followed so far? No. He's done nothing. He just believed. He trusted. He chose faith. That's it. It was that simple. It's what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise, and it is not contingent on his behavior. It is not a contingent on him following any rules, being a good boy. I picked you. You didn't pick me. Trust me. The promise is unilateral. It is unconditional. It is eternal. Abraham is made right by faith. And guess what else? Nothing. Nothing. That's what's so interesting because all of these great world religions, including the one we're part of, somehow this gets really confused. Because they all diverge out of this. God says Abraham is made right by faith, and religion then adds all of these rules. Uh, Judaism would go on to proclaim that you're made right before God when you become a Jew, and you get circumcised, and you follow all of the Jew- Jewish laws and rules. And about 600 years after Jesus, Muhammad would come along and he would say, well, you, you have to have a right understanding of God. You've got to believe in God and the prophets, and you have to do works and acts of righteousness. And at the end of your life, the sum total, God is going to balance them out. And you won't know if you've done enough. You're not sure of your standing before God. But, you know, hopefully if you'd followed enough rules and you did more good than bad, you'll be okay. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he, he proclaims this mission of mercy and grace. But if you know the story, just, I mean, Jesus isn't gone for more than a few minutes. And all of a sudden, the rules start coming back. It's not just those three religions. Hinduism has four principles. Buddhists have five moral precepts. You show me the religion, I'll show you the rule. God's on this rescue mission. And somehow it got equated to being, here's the rescue mission. Do what I say and you'll be okay. But God is trying to start a family, this family of faith, that is offspring. He tells Abraham, your offspring, this family is going to be as numerous as the stars. And you stand righteous before God, not because of anything you've done, Abraham, because I've declared you righteous because of your faith. So where do all the rules come from? Because if I'm honest, I mean, I was told, you got to follow the rules. In fact, if you're anything like most Christians, what's the first thing? You know, you might, somebody explains to you the gospel of Jesus, right? That you're forgiven, you know, that God loves you. You could go to heaven and spend eternity. You know what the first question we ask is? Well, what do I have to do? And you know what the first response is? Well, here's all these things that you got to start doing. Where did this all come from? Before I give you the answer, I want to share with you a story about my family. Uh, I had this little story I used to tell my kids, and, and it wasn't the perfect way to raise kids, and I don't even tell you that you should do it, but it was just something that we did, and it was kind of stupid and whatever. But every day, when they would go out the door to go to school, you've heard, some of you have been around long enough, you know, you know the story. I'd give them a little speech. I'd tell them, uh, it was called the uh, Remember Your Name speech. And so I would give them a little speech about who they are. As they were getting ready to leave, I'd say, hey, listen, before you leave, I want you to remember something. 
None of your great-grandparents went to high school. Not one of them. Your great-grandfather worked his whole life in a scissor factory so that your grandfather might have more opportunities. And then I would tell them about their grandfather. Your grandfather, you have, you have a couple grandfathers. One of them joined the military, put it, worked his way, had to be in the military so he could go to college. Your other grandfather worked, at, worked all day and went to undergrad at night, eight years of undergrad at night with four kids. None of your great-grandparents ever owned a house, and they all sacrificed. They all did these things so that you could be afforded all of the opportunities you have right now. As you walk out that door, remember your name. It's a long way of saying, don't screw up, right? It's just like a massive guilt trip. Really wasn't, wasn't what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do, I was trying to communicate to them who we are. You know, what we value in our family, this is our identity. These stories, these truths, they shape us. They shape where we've been and, and where we're going. They give meaning and context to our walk. Remember the name. And so now with that in mind, God is starting this family. And Abraham trusts, not perfectly, mind you, but he believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. God is faithful, and Abraham and Sarah, against all odds, they have a son. They name him Isaac. And then in a crazy and completely misunderstood story, God comes and, and asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And what does Abraham do? Well, again, he trusts, and he believes, and he shows, and God shows up and says, no, I just, I wanted you to understand a bigger, deeper truth, which is I'm not like the other gods who want sacrifices. I'm the God who's going to provide a sacrifice. And in this foreshadowing of Jesus, a ram is in the thicket, and, and Abraham is not sacrificed, but he trusted and, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom's named Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, right? He's got the dream coat, and his brothers hate him, and his father's favorite, and they try to kill him. Winds up in Egypt, maybe you know the story, winds up in Egypt, and he winds up the prime minister of Egypt. And so it, it went all wrong, his brothers are back in their hometown, Abraham's family's starving, there's a famine in the land. Joseph hears about it, invites them all to Egypt. Hey, come on over here. I know what you tried to did about, do to me. We'll let bygones be bygones. Come on over here. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. And so all of Abraham's family moves to Egypt. Well, they start reproducing because God had said, you know, you're going to have a lot of kids like stars in the sky. And so all these Hebrews are reproducing like crazy, which is a real problem if you're an Egyptian. Right? And so all of a sudden, the Egyptians don't like the fact that all these Hebrews are taking over their land, which is actually kind of interesting if you just want to kind of forward to modern day stuff we struggle with in our own country, right? All of a sudden, all the Israelites or the Hebrews are taking over. So what does Pharaoh decide to do? They go to Pharaoh, they go, you got to do something, we're going to lose our country. And so Pharaoh goes, here's what we're going to do, I'm going to enslave all of them. And so Abraham's whole family, all of these descendants that were supposed to be a nation, wind up slaves, for 400 years. God does not work on our timeline. Have you noticed that? It's a real bummer sometimes. Like a 400-year bummer. <laughs> now, if you've seen Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, you know Moses comes on the scene. God does all these incredible miracles. The locusts, the boils, right? Darkness comes. Pharaoh is told by Abraham to let, let his people go, to let to let Abraham's, excuse me, told by Moses to let Abraham's people go. 
Pharaoh changes his mind. He lets them go. But then he rechanges his mind. He chases them to the Red Sea. God opens the Red Sea. The Hebrews pass through. Abraham's children pass through. The Egyptians follow. The Red Sea closes back over them. And now for the first time, there is a nation and they're free. So about three weeks later, this is a nation that's been a slave for 400 years. How many laws does this nation have? None. And so God says, Moses, come up. I'm going to give unto you the laws. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he's given, among a lot of laws, what we now know as the Ten Commandments, or, as what you were told, the rules. Here's what you've got to do. He gives them a lot of rules, but the ones we're most familiar with are the Ten Commandments. You know the ones that we keep demanding people put out in front of the courthouse, the ones your grandma had a picture of on the wall, you know? You know, who knows the Ten Commandments? Who knows all ten of them? At least you people are honest, most of you. (laughs) Right? Like, let's go through it. uh, Okay, what do we know? Don't murder. We all know the adultery one, right? Because that just kind of sticks out. After that, there's a few things in there about God and uh, maybe don't steal, right? We can nail some of them. How are you doing on keeping them? Well, I don't know because I don't know all ten of them. Well, if you're made right by keeping them, no wonder you don't go to bed at night not wondering how things are. Because I don't even know where I am with God because I've somehow related my relationship to God to these rules. But here's something you need to understand about the Ten Commandments and all of these these rules. You have to understand the context into which God spoke them and their purpose. These are a people with no civil laws at all. And God gives them, uh, before he gives them any laws, God gives them the purpose of the law. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? If you don't understand the prelude to the giving of the rules and the laws, you will never understand the relationship between rules and laws and how it fits with God. Here's what God said when he called Moses up. He goes, you know, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. And the whole earth is mine, but you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God reminds them what he's done for them, what they've seen, how they could trust them. And then he makes a covenant which is so different than the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant has nothing to do with somebody standing before God. Can, can you understand that? Nowhere does this say, if you keep these, you'll go to heaven. This is a, con- this is a conditional covenant. If you do this, then you'll be that. And really what this covenant is saying is, if you'll do this, you will reflect the mirror back correctly and you will become a kingdom of priests the way you were meant to be. You'll start to look like my people. People will know who I am because of who you are. If you do this, you'll fulfill the purpose of the Imago Dei. In fact, he gives a second introduction to the rules. Right before rule one, he goes, God spoke and God spoke these words. I'm the Lord your God who bought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Stop. What had they done to deserve to be bought out of the land of Egypt? Anyone? Nothing. What had they done to deserve to be called the people of God? What had they done? Nothing. Why were they? Because God 
chose them. I'm your God, you're my people. I rescued you, I came through for you just like I did for Abraham. Long before there were any rules, you're my people. I loved you before the rules. So, before I give you any rules, understand something, you're mine before the rules start. And now, trust me. Trust me. I'm giving you these laws, trust me. I can be trusted. And so therefore, the first commandment, which frames all of them, is don't have any other gods before me. You're my people. I chose you a long time ago. I've come through for you again and again. You're not mine because you're good or you kept the law. I chose you. You did not choose me. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, because Jesus would say it years later. John Ortberg brilliant, brings brilliant clarity to this. Listen to this. He says, the Ten Commandments were never designed to be a standalone list of rules. They came within a relational context. They describe what living up to a certain value and a certain identity and a certain destiny looks like. In fact, in Judaism, they are not called the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew term is different. It literally means the ten utterances or ten statements. They flow out of how we were designed and who we were meant to be. We read them as this is what you have to do, but what God was saying is this is who you are. That's why we don't so much break the ten commandments as we break ourselves when we violate them. Now I know I could be pushing buttons here, because if you're like me, you got brought up with Jesus loves you, he died for you, but you better keep all these laws just in case. And, and what the New Testament keeps teaching over and over and over again is, no, 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 that's an old covenant. You don't have to live up to those rules. You're not saved by those rules. Those rules are holy and important. They reflect the image of who God is and who you are as a people. But they have no, your ability to keep them has nothing to do with your standing before God. In fact, if you don't believe me, I'll make a bold statement, right? There is no one who will ever stand before God righteous because they kept the rules. If you don't believe me, believe Paul, chief law keeper. Here's what he said. He goes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what I mean is this. The law, these Mosaic laws, the Ten Commandments, introduced 430 years later, do not set aside the covenant established by God with Abraham. And they don't do away with the promise. If the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depended on the promise. But God, in His grace, gave it through a promise. Speaking of Jesus' life and His death and His fulfillment of all the rules on our behalf... Check this out. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The rules are saving no one. Do you get that? They have no power post-Jesus. The whole point of all the rules was to show us the need for saving. Have you ever told a kid, you had a young kid, imagine going to the store, you buy a big box of Cheez-Its. Right before you leave, you say to your kid, hey, whatever you do, don't eat those Cheez-Its. What's the first thing he does? 
He eats the Cheez-It. Why? Because you told him not to. In fact, if you were to ask him, he'd say, you know, I wasn't even think of how, I, would, I didn't, wasn't even hungry for a Cheez-It. I didn't even want a Cheez-It until you told me that I couldn't have a Cheez-It. Then suddenly I had this desire that sprung to life in me for a Cheez-It. And that sounds silly, but that's what Paul is saying the whole point of the law was. He goes, when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. See, we keep going at people with the law. Put it in front of the courthouse. Well, I understand you're trying to show people who God is, but at the same time, you're arousing within them some evil. Paul goes, should we say that the law, is it sinful? No. But he goes, nevertheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it, been, had it not been for the law. I didn't know what coveting was. I didn't know what a cheese is what cheese it was until the law said you can't have a cheese it. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced me every kind of desire for a cheese it. I found the very commandment I was in, it was intended to bring life brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, it tricked me. So then the law is holy. Yes, this is who God's people should be. This is what they should look like, right? But it's the commandments that fluff up our sin nature. And God is trying to show us you can't actually keep them. You need a savior. The law wasn't there to make you who you are, but to show you who you are. And so why do I tell you all this? I'll close with three three reasons, three quick reasons. Reason one. Some of you have kept God so far off because of all of these rules. Right? Like your introduction to Christianity was, we got to follow all these rules. Well, who would want to do that? And that makes no sense. Jesus died for my sins so I could follow the rules? I remember when I was at Rutgers, I came to know who Jesus was after my freshman year of college. You want to talk about a crud time to find out who Jesus is. Right? I mean, that really puts a crimp in somebody's lifestyle. I remember sitting in the fire escape at Rutgers after freshman year. I had a big party in my room, and I just felt this, like, consuming guilt that I was out in the fire exit crying, wrestling with God, right? And some of that was conviction of the Holy Spirit, because I was not acting. I was not remembering the name. I was not remembering who I was. I was not acting out of, of my salvation. But there was another part of me that was like, I hate these rules. You're not saved by the rules, you're saved by Christ. And so some of you are so far off from God because you've got in your mind all these concepts. I have to live up to these things. I have to do these things. I've failed over and over again. You're hiding from God. Sin causes us to hide from God. It's all about rules. Listen, Christianity is the only major religion that, listen, it has nothing to do with rules. You're saved by faith. The exact same way Abraham was. Jesus fulfilled all the rules for you. You're free. Second, I'm the Lord your God. You are my people. He tells them that before he gives them the rules. Why? Trust me. Therefore, you're good. Do we have the quote from James? Jesus' brother puts this up here. I know I'm going to get an email from somebody that's going to go, oh, now they're all going to go home and have sex and you smoke. But... Um, here, do you have the James one? Um, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Because of course faith impacts how we live. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So don't go home and have sex and smoke. That's not the point of this talk. The point of this talk is that you're not saved by rules and, and your relationship with God is not all about how well you performed relative to keeping these rules. I'll just be honest with you. I remember I had a, time, a talk with one of my kids one time. We were talking about the birds and the bees. See, I like rules. I would love to tell my kids that if they would just follow the rules, they'll go to heaven, and if they don't, they'll go to hell. It really keeps a kid in line, right? Some of you grew up with that, and some of you, all of us are processing through it still at one point. I remember talking to one of my kids, and I said, listen, I need to talk to you about God's plan for, for, for sex, and God really, his desire, is it's this gift, and it was meant to be, now, you're probably going to get mad at me, but anyway, um, it's the gospel, so whatever. Um, so... I said, listen, I need you to understand something about this gift of, uh, of our, our sexuality that God has given it to us, but it's been twisted, you know, and so we want to use it the wrong way oftentimes, and, and what I want you to understand is God has a plan for, for, for our sexuality. It's to be lived out in a loving, committed, married, marital relationship between a husband and a wife, and, and then I wanted to say is, and man, if you have, if you have sex before you're married, you're going to go to hell. That's really what I wanted to say. I'm just being totally honest, because, right, like that'll keep them in line. And I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you're building up a ton of guilt here. You're going to teach her to relate to God through the rules. You're going to teach her that as she behaves, that's how she can be accepted. And so then I had to say something that I didn't want to say so bad. I said, and you know, what's going to happen if you have sex before you get married? Do you know what God's going to think about you if you have sex before you get married? the exact same thing he thought about you before you had sex. Because he doesn't relate to you through the rules. Some of you need to hear that. And lastly, as the band comes forward, I think G Jesus would say to us what God said to his people. You've seen what I've done you see what I did in Egypt. You've seen how in your life I've carried you to this point on eagle's wings. I've brought you to myself. So a couple things. Number one, follow the rules. Not because they're saving you, but because would you trust me? I love you. This is who we are. And when we get the mirror right, this is how people are going to know who I am. By how we live, what we do. And the second thing is, just for some of you, you have to start to treat people the way God treats you. He does not relate to you based on rules. And some of you are keeping people so off, far off from you, from the church, from your home. I have a friend, I'll just close with this, I know I'm running like, I have, a, I have a friend, he's got a kid, and the kid is a mess, I mean a mess. Everything that you could want your kid to be, this kid is not. I was talking to him the other day, and um, you know, I said, how are you doing? And he said, Call her every week. Just tell her I love her. What about all the stuff? She knows how I feel about it. Has it impacted the relationship? I mean, I, I wish she wasn't doing that. But I call her every week. And I still love her. Some of you need to know that that's the way God feels about you. 
And some of you need to start treating husbands and wives and sons and daughters the way God treats you. Mm -hmm.